This is the Morning Rush. Coming up on today's show, could the Lightning finally dispatch of the Canadiens and win back-to-back Stanley Cups? We'll preview Game 2 of the NBA Finals tonight in Phoenix. Have we seen the end of an era in men's tennis? And we have some controversy at Euro 2020. Yes, that's right. Both tennis and soccer talk on today's show. It is July after all. Things are winding down as we head into the summer months. Also, uh, Shohei Otani does it again for the Angels. And we'll talk about his uh, all-star status. We'll hear from the guys at PTI. All kinds of stuff going on uh, in the next two hours of the show. Good morning to you. How the heck are you? So glad to have you on board. So glad you could take some time to tune in and hang out as we kick off this thirsty Thursday morning. Several ways to get involved on the show, as always. Hit me up on Twitter, at WCMD Morning Rush. My page, at Rush Tony C. On Facebook, at uh, WCMD Cumberland Radio. All of those pages, free and open to the public. Like them. Follow them, please, and thank you. And anytime you feel, you know, moved to do so, uh, drop me a line. Send me a message, question, comment, opinion, all encouraged, all welcome. If they are suitable, (laughs) uh, we'll uh, talk about it on the air. If you don't want to do that, you don't want to go that route, you can call, the or is it root? I guess it depends on where you're from. Uh, Rush line is open, 301-759-2628. Your chance to dial and dance. Shamo, 301-759-2628. And, of course, uh, do not forget about our podcast page where we upload every show every day, minus commercials. We cut it up, slice it up, and then wrap it up with a nice little ribbon and a bow, and we present it to you for your listening convenience whenever you get around to it. So if you can't catch the show in the morning live, if you want to catch part of it, or you want to you know, circle back around and ca- in the afternoon on your drive home from work, it'll be there on the podcast page. Again, on that free Podbean app. So several ways to get involved. We encourage it. We welcome you into the show. I don't want to sit here and talk for two hours. I don't. Seriously, I don't. I don't want to hear myself for two hours. I could do it. I do it a lot. Uh, At one point, this show was three hours long, and I somehow carried that. I don't want to talk for two hours straight. Not that I don't. I mean, we have sound bites and audio clips and all kinds of stuff. Don't get me wrong. A lot of stuff to fill the time. But we want to hear from you. Again, if you don't want to call, if you don't feel comfortable calling, just leave a message on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll talk about it. And it doesn't have to be something I'm talking about. Again, we're going to talk hockey today. We're going to talk uh, NBA playoffs. We're going to talk tennis, soccer, baseball. We talk about a lot of stuff. But if there's something that's kind of 
you know, you got an itch in your craw, something that's bothering you or something you want to get off your chest or something you just want to bring up, it's okay. You can just, again, throw the topic out there and we'll run with it. We can adjust on the fly, as we've had to do uh, several times over the last, well, I guess it's going to be almost two years. Can you believe that? Almost two years of this show? Amazing. Incredible. I don't believe it myself. All right, let's kick off today's shows. We kick off every show with a rock around the region. I want to rock! And we start with Major League Baseball, where the Nationals jumped on the Padres early and often in San Diego. That one is hit well to left. See you later. Number 400 for Soto on hits. And just like that, it's 3-0. And Bell takes it the other way. Escobar scoring. Turner coming home. Ball gets away. Runners will hold it second and third. And the Nats do lead 5-0. Bob Carpenter, the calls on Mid-Atlantic Sportsnet. National scored three runs in the first, four in the second, two in the third to take a 10-0 lead. And they go on to hammer the Padres 15-5. Juan Soto, you heard that home run call. He announced earlier in the day yesterday he will participate in the home run derby. Then he had that three-run jack uh, in the first inning. Josh Harrison, former Pirate, had three hits and three RBI. Josh Bell, former Pirate, had three hits and drove in two for Washington, which can take three of four in this series with a win tonight. Patrick Corbin, uh, the beneficiary of the early run support, he allowed two runs on seven hits in six innings of work. Elsewhere, speaking of blowouts, the Braves were trying to avoid getting swept out of Pittsburgh. The other nine have gotten on. Well, that's over with now. Base hit out to left. And he's going to bring in a pair of Braves. Acuna and Adrianza score on that two-run single. It's now 7-3 Atlanta. They've scored five times here in the sixth. Joe blocked the call on the Pirates Radio Network. Five runs for the Braves in that sixth inning. And that wasn't even the worst inning for the Pirates. Here's the 0-1, and a swing and a ground ball through the middle. Base hit. And at this rate, when you go to bed, you can hear the ninth inning. Atlanta's putting it on tonight. It is 10-3. Seven more runs in the eighth inning for the Braves as they pounded out 18 hits in a 14-3 win to avoid uh, that three-game sweep. The Pirates' bullpen got absolutely blown up. Kyle Crick. Allowed four runs in just a third of an inning. Dwayne Underwood Jr. gave up all seven runs in that eighth inning on eight hits. That will not help the ERA at all. Jacob Stallings had a two-run homer. And John Nagowski, no-go, had four hits for the Pirates. Since coming over from the Cardinals, Nagowski is seven for 12 with the Bucks, that's an average of 583. And in Baltimore, the Blue Jays hammered out 15 hits in a 10-2 win over the Oreos. Bo Bichette homered and drove in three runs. Of Vlad Guerrero Jr. had three hits for the Jays. O's starter Matt Harvey. Yeesh. He got tagged for six runs on nine hits in just three and two-thirds innings. He is now 3-10 this season with a robust ERA of 770. 
He is 0-9 in his last 12 starts since May 1st, and he now ranks second in the American League in losses, one behind his own teammate, Jorge Lopez. So those two have combined for 21 losses this season. Austin Hayes, I had two hits and an RBI for the O's. And in college football, the All-Big 12 preseason team was announced yesterday. Yes, we're doing that already. And Dante Stills was the only West Virginia player to make the list. Uh, Stills is one of five defensive linemen on the 14-player defensive team. His older brother, Darius, was last year's Big 12 Defensive Lineman of the Year. Now, last season, as a junior, Dante was an all-Big 12 honorable mention pick after uh, 35 tackles, including a team-high 10.5 tackles for a loss. Oklahoma led the way with nine players on the all-conference preseason team. Iowa State, yes, Iowa State, had eight. Oklahoma quarterback Spencer Rattler is the preseason pick for Offensive Player of the Year in the conference. Iowa State linebacker Mike Rose is the preseason pick on defense. The Big 12 uh, will announce the media's preseason poll sometime later today. And that is uh, your Rock Around the Region, brought to you by the Caporale Group. Uh, So hopefully you were able to uh, tune in last night. As we, for the very first time ever, broadcast a Penmar uh, West Virginia baseball game last night. Uh, good job by Jim Zapp and James Lohr. They had the call. Again, we've never done it. It was, you know, first time, the first time for everything, right? And by all accounts, broadcast sounded good. Was good. I was amazed that we actually got the game in, tell you the truth. I was worried. Because it was uh, slated for a 7.30 first pitch. And right around, I would say, I don't know, 5, 5.30, it was thundering at my house like the world was coming to an end yesterday. I mean, it it had the cats just running for cover. It had me running for cover. But it never rained. I don't think a drop of rain fell yesterday, at least not where I live. But boy, the thunder was just rolling. And I'm thinking, man, we're never they're never getting that game in. We got it all set up. We got the guys going down there, broadcast the game. And I, I thought, well, they're just going to postpone it. But they, they got it in. But it was a good job all around. It was, uh, who was it last night? The Cumberland Orioles and the Wheelhouse Arsenal. So maybe a sign of things to come. If enough people like it, get some good feedback, and we'll start broadcasting more uh, Penmar West Virginia Baseball League games. Uh, here on this very tonight, it's a t- I'm trying. Let me check the schedule here. I gotta consult the bones. Hold on. Yeah, the Nats. Uh, they're going for uh, the series win tonight against the Padres, so they will be on uh, the air this evening. I do believe it's an earlier start than usual because the last couple nights uh, it was like a 9:40 pregame, but I'm fairly certain it is an hour earlier tonight. Is that right? What's today? The eighth. Yeah, it's an 8.40, so it's an hour earlier. So you got Nats uh, at the Padres tonight wrapping up that four-game set. Catch the action right here. Again, pregame at 8.40. All right, so uh, let's get right into it as we move on. Last night in Tampa, 
Biggest game of the evening, any sport across the board. Well, I, I take it back. If you're a soccer fan, may, maybe not. But I think for the most part, last night's game in Tampa, biggest game. Lightning hosting the Canadiens, game five of the Stanley Cup final. Uh, Montreal won game four in Montreal to force last night's game. They're hoping to force a game six, get a win last night, and force a game six uh, back home. Keep the season, the series alive. Lightning, they're trying to put the series to bed and clinch their second straight Stanley Cup title. How would you like to be a Tampa fan, by the way? I mean, seriously. Over the, I know things have been crazy and wonky with the pandemic. I know it's been nuts. Tampa Bay affected by the pandemic like anybody else. But you had the Rays get to the World Series last year. They lost to the Dodgers. You had the Buccaneers win the Super Bowl. You had the Lightning win the Cup last year. And now they're going for back-to-back Cups last night. What an incredible run for Tampa Bay sports. And, look, last night the Lightning controlled most of the play in the first period. They outshot the Habs uh, 13-8. to But Carey Price, doing what Carey Price does, he kept the puck out of the net. And the game was tied, nothing, nothing, after the first 20 minutes, right? It stayed that way deep into the second period until finally somebody, pun intended, broke the ice in game five. And here we go, cover your ears, hide the women and children. It's Michigan time. Who's going to come up with it? McDonough will. He emerges with it, center point. Oh, right circle, Chernak. Score with the board! He set it up for Ross Colton! Ross Colton's made it 1-0! Savard stepped in, centered it for Ross Colton. He redirected it in. It's 1-0 Lightning. Dave Mishkin, the call on WFLA, Lightning Radio Network. <laughs> he is he is so over the top. He's like a cartoon, really. How he just goes from calmly calling the game to absolutely just blowing up his vocal cords. Like just pegging the needle, man. It's amazing how he does that. David Savard set up Ross Colton 13-27 into the second period to put Tampa Bay up 1-0. Believe it or not, the Lightning held on to that slim, the slimmest of leads all the way to the final seconds of regulation. 13 seconds left. Coleman looking to grab it. Dano trying to center it. Knocking it away. Yeti Gord. He clears it. He clears it. I don't think this is going to be an icing. No. Three seconds left. Petri, a final shot. The Lightning have done it. They have done it. They, they it have again. gone back to back for the second year in a row. Oh. They have won the Stanley Cup. You think he's a little bit excited? Just maybe a little bit? one nothing the final. Tampa Bay gets the win. They win the series 4-1, to and they win the Stanley Cup for the second straight year. Second team to win back-to-back Cups in the salary cap era. The Penguins went back-to-back in 2016 and 17. To put a cap on the game, the series, the season, the hockey experts, especially one with the wonderfully flowing mullet. Steve Levy, he doesn't have the mullet, by the way. 
and Barry Melrose. Obviously, it's entirely different from a year ago in the bubble. Friends and family were not allowed. Uh, if Tampa Bay would have won the last game in Montreal, they would have had to celebrate again alone because of the quarantine. So this is really special. And the mayor of Tampa, Barry, got exactly <laughs> what she wanted. She got off the hook. That's what she got, man. If they'd have lost this game, they'd have to go back to Montreal. But I, I agree with you totally. Uh, not having the team uh, involved last year, uh, the players out on the ice by themselves, no noise in the building. It's just not to be like that. Uh, hockey's a game of enthusiasm and, and, and loudness and anger and passion. We just didn't have any of that last year with the crowd not involved. But this year, crowd started coming back. The building started getting full. Here is basically a full house. The yeah. place was great, electric, loud, boisterous. It was just awesome. And that's what this game is all about. And a great team won back-to-back -back Stanley Cup. How it should always be. And again, we haven't had a home team win the Stanley Cup on their home ice since 2015. So it was really nice. Something that stands out to me that, that'll be lost, I think. The one goal in the game was David Savard to Ross Colton. There were only two players, only two in the entire Tampa Bay lineup, who didn't have a Stanley Cup ring from a year ago, and it was those two players. That sort of speaks volumes about this Lightning organization. Yeah, but the one thing you didn't mention, McDonough passed it to Savard. Yes. McDonough was traded a couple years ago right. to this team, and then Savard was traded last year to bring in some muscle and some size, and then you go across to Colton, who is doing unbelievable work defensively, and now they found out the guy can score goals too, so that is what Tampa's all about. Great trades, great drafts, they're the best organization in hockey right now, best front office in hockey, I think the best coach in hockey right now, and boy, are they playing well. Make no mistake, the key to this series was the goaltending, and that was kind of the question coming yeah. in. You talked about it yeah. as we previewed the series. Andre Vasilevsky against Carey Price. Price already has said post-game tonight he was not good enough early in the series. Yeah, it's, it's hard to criticize Carey Price the way he's played, what he's won for Canada and international hockey, what he's won for Montreal Canadiens. Uh, one of the most storied franchises in the NHL. But Vasilevsky is a new kid in the block. He's the young stud uh, that's coming to a new school. And a new school in Stanley <laughs> Cup playoffs and winning Stanley Cups and winning Conn Smythe. The guy's fantastic. He's the best goaltender in the game right now. He's only going to get better. Carey Price is still great. He showed that this playoffs. But right now, the NHL belongs to Vasilevsky. Yeah. Vasilevsky in his last five series clinching <laughs> wins. All shutouts. All shutouts. Had a one nothing shutout in Game 7 yep. against the Islanders. Yep. But, Scott, we'll, we'll leave you with this. Uh, these two Stanley Cups are won in the last 280 days. That's the shortest span we've seen consecutive Stanley Cups. Hey, no more Stanley Cups in September or even July. Next year we get back to June, be on ESPN and ABC Family and Networks, and it'll all be good going forward. But full marks to the Tampa Bay Lightning. I forgot about that. I forgot that the NHL is moving around next year. All of a sudden, the NHL is a hot property. ESPN's carrying some games next season. I think TNT is now in on the fray. I like it, though. The more hockey, the better. Uh, they mentioned Andre Vasilevsky. Dude is an absolute stud. He's a beast. He's big-time baller status. You talking about coming up big in the biggest situation. He stopped all 22 shots he saw last night. And you heard him mention it, and this is really amazing. In the last five series-clinching wins for Tampa Bay, Vasilevsky has five shutouts. That is an NHL record. And you go all the way back to last season, Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Finals against the Stars. Shutout. Game 6, 
this year's first round against the Panthers, shutout. Second round, game five against Carolina, shutout. In the Eastern Conference Finals, or I guess what would have been the Eastern Conference Finals in a regular season, game seven against the Islanders, one nothing shutout. Last night, one nothing shutout. That is, you can't get any more clutch than that. You see, you can't. Five straight series clinching shutouts. That he's the only goaltender in the history of the league to ever do that. He is one of three goaltenders to have five shutouts in series clinching wins. Okay. Two other guys have done it, but none of them have done it five games in a row. Uh, Chris Osgood did it with the Red Wings, and Clint Benedict with the Ottawa Senators. Vasilevsky is also uh, the third goaltender to have a shutout in two Stanley Cup clinching games, last year against the Stars and then last night. Benedict did it way back in 1923 and 1926, and Bernie Perron. In 1974 and 75 with the Philly Flyers. He also, oh, by the way, uh, won the uh, Conn Smythe Award, which goes to the playoff MVP, becoming the 17th goaltender uh, to win that award in the first one. Oh, no, I'm sorry, since it was awarded in 1965, the first since 2012, when uh, Jonathan Quick won it with the LA Kings. This postseason, and you know what? He, he was deserving. He was deserving. You look at his stats from this is his playoff year. 16 and 7. And that's the number you want, right? You got to win 16 games to win the Stanley Cup. So that, that's the magic number. 16 and 7 this postseason, a 1.90 goals against, and a 937 save percentage with those five shutouts. And again, four of those this postseason. In series clinchers. And again, you talk about coming up clutch, coming up big time. Over the last two postseasons, the Lightning are 15-0 and following a playoff loss. That's, a, that's incredible. You talk about the ability to be resilient and bounce back. They, have, they haven't lost back-to-back games in two straight postseasons. That's phenomenal. And then you heard the guys talk about David Savard and Ross Colton. Savard got the assist. Colton got the goal. Only two players on this year's Tampa roster who didn't have their name put on the cup last season. That's incredible. That is being able to keep and, and retain all of those players from a championship team last year. And the two guys you add this year, <laughs> they get their names on a cup as well. All around, Tremendous. The Lightning, they're the cream of the crop right now. Back-to-back Cups, again, uh, First, second team to do it in the uh, – not Stanley Cup era, salary cap era. And so where do they rank in the cap era – I want to say cap area. Why am I doing that? Cap era, Greg Wyshynski, ESPN, says uh, they're the absolute best. It's the most impressive team of the cap era, in my opinion. You know, not only in their the way they played, and not only in winning back-to-back championships, but the meticulous way they they were put together, and the the boldness with which they were put together. They, they have ten guys on this roster that just won the cup that they drafted, and not all of them were first rounders. I mean, they found a Braden Point in the third round. They found 
Andre Palat in the seventh round. And then there was a bunch of guys that seemed that they went out and acquired, but they did so in a very aggressive way, trading first-round picks to other teams in order to acquire these players. So, you know, from a construction standpoint and from an execution standpoint and a talent standpoint, I just think this is probably the most impressive team that we've seen win in the cap era. And, you know, I can't, I can't disagree with that. Even though I'm a Penguins fan, as you may know, and look, the cap era, I got it right that time, started with the 2005-2006 season. And as we've already said, there's there's been two back-to-back cup winners, Penguins and the Lightning. And I have to admit, again, even as a Penguins guy, this Tampa Bay team from this year and last year, better, even with Sidney Crosby and Malkin and all the guys, better than those two Penguins teams from 2016-2017. If they played a series tomorrow... I would take the Lightning. They're that good. All right, so the Stanley Cup playoffs are over. NBA playoffs still going on. We'll talk about that next. Stick around. WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. No Canadian team with a cup championship since 1993. When Montreal did it. Now, I understand the majority of teams are still in the U.S., right? And there's what is there, six, is there like six teams north of the border, six, seven teams, something like that. And, and my son, Little C, uh, he even asked me about that. We were watching, it wasn't last night, I think it was the game before. And he asked me, he said, how come there aren't more teams in Canada? I mean, that's, you know, supposed to be Canada's sport, right? Hockey? And I really didn't have an answer for him. Really didn't have an answer for him. Now, I know in the past when they talked about expansion, uh, they talked uh, about the city of Hamilton, which is about, I don't know, I'm not quite an hour uh, east of Toronto. Uh, Talk about putting a team back in Quebec. Quebec City needs another team. The Nordiques. Love the Nordiques back in the day. If you don't know it, look it up. So I, I went to an expert. Actually, uh, not an expert at all. He kind of is. It's my boy Timmy. Timmy! Who lives uh, up there in Ontario. And I asked him, I said, Timmy, I said, how come there aren't any more teams, you know, any more teams in Canada? And he said, because uh, Commissioner Bettman, Gary Bettman, doesn't want that. That he'd rather, he'd rather try to make hockey work in places like Arizona than put more teams in Canada, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. And he mentioned the two teams I did. He said Hamilton would be a great place for an NHL team and Quebec City. But no, he said the NHL, and I believe him, not that he has any inside information, but it makes sense. He said the NHL would rather push the American product and try to make you know teams work in the desert, then put it you know up in the hotbed of hockey. So I, that it doesn't make sense. It's not a good business model. And heck, they even expanded here not too long ago. They put a team in Seattle, which which would be a nice little rivalry spot for Vancouver out there on the west coast, close enough, right? Close enough. It's not quite Canada. <laughs> But Seattle's it's close. It's close. 
And I don't think the NHL has any uh, plans on expanding anytime soon. So anyway, uh, Stanley Cup playoffs in the books. Congratula- uh, congratulations. <laughs> Did I just say congratulations? I don't know. Congratulations to the Lightning. Back-to-back uh, cup winners. NBA playoffs still going on. One more a championship to be decided from, you know, last year, 2020-2021 season. Tonight in Phoenix, Game 2 of the final. Suns trying to hold serve at home once again and take a, a 2-0 series lead. They beat the Bucks uh, two nights ago, uh, 118-105. Two big headlines coming out of Game 1. Chris Paul going off for 32 points in his finals debut. And Giannis getting on the floor uh, for the Bucks when he wasn't expected to play with that, that bad knee injury. And he went for 20 points and 17, it says assists, that's not right, 17 rebounds in 35 minutes. Now Giannis is expected to be on the floor again tonight for game two. Uh, with an update on his situation, here's ESPN's Malika Andrews. They like what they saw from Giannis Antetokounmpo. And Giannis said after the game that, you know what, I thought after I went down, even though he said he didn't watch the video clip of him hyperextending that left knee, he said, I thought I was going to be out for a year. And so the fact that he was just able to go out on the court and not only just be out there, but actually be effective, that is a win in his eyes, even if they weren't able to come away with the win. And as you know, I've covered Giannis for the past three years. And he was, after a loss, usually he's contemplating things. He's a little bit pensive and reserved. He was as happy or as as, uh, positive as I have seen him after a loss in the three years that I have covered him. So clearly he he was excited that he was able to be out there. They want to make adjustments and come away with a better outcome for them in game two. But he said that he came through the night feeling well and he's feeling good this morning. I saw him put a couple of shots up and he looked pretty good. He looked great. Uh, To your point, when I watched it happen in real time, I thought, oh, he's done for at least the season, Mm -hmm. maybe next as well. So maybe it's not just his skill that's freaky, maybe his tendons as well. You did mention the adjustments part. Be specific there. What specific adjustments did the Bucks need to make in game two? What did he tell you? Yeah, so I sat down I sat down with Giannis Antetokounmpo for a couple of minutes today, and he said, you know, one thing that we need to work on is we had open shots last night that we gave up. Sometimes we made the extra pass when we did not need to, when we actually had the better shot the first go around. And so he said they need to tighten up on that a little bit. He said they need to be better in transition. They need to be able to combat the sun's pace. They need to get downhill. That is where they play so incredibly well, when they use their size. And Giannis also said, you know, he was able to test out exactly what his body was going to allow him to do in game one. So he's the type of player, as Mike Budenholzer said, that after he has a game under his belt, he takes one, two, three games to really get himself back up to full strength. So he expects himself to be even better in game two. I think people who uh, constantly use Giannis's last name, they're just showing off. <laughs> I've tried several times to pronounce it. I just can't do it. That's just one of those, it just trips me up there. So I I stopped. It's going to be Giannis forever for me. But people who pronounce his name, and Malika pronounces it perfectly, she's just showing off. Uh, Suns dealing with injury issues of their own. A forward, Dario Asaric, suffered a torn ACL in game one. He, of course, is done for the rest of the series. How does Phoenix fill that void? Here's ESPN's Dave McMiniman. 
Monty Williams says there's three guys they'll lean on in this situation. You have Frank Kaminsky, who is also a center and has some playmaking ability. And obviously, he's someone that got a little bit of run in game one of the finals. You have Torrey Craig, who isn't traditionally a center. He's more of a three, if not a four. But he got 16 minutes in game one and put up two points, three rebounds, but kept them playing up and down that small ball style. And then you have Abdul Nader, who had an injury of his own that kept him out from March until the conference final. So he's just getting his legs underneath him. Monty Williams said some mix and match of those three guys is the direction they'll go in. But the challenge is trying to get them up to speed playing a position they're not used to. Now, obviously, uh, Sarge isn't Chris Paul or Devin Booker, or DeAndre Ayton. All right? But the last thing you want to do is suffer any kind of injury or deal with any kind of injury at this point in the season. You were talking about three guys now having to replace one. I didn't even know Frank Kaminsky was still in the league until he just mentioned his name. But he also mentioned Monty Williams, head coach of the Suns, and the guys who are calling the NBA Finals on ESPN Radio, uh, Mark Kessler and John Barry, got to sit down and talk with Coach Williams last night, and we'll hear what Coach Williams had to say next. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. Uh, Talking NBA uh, Finals. Game two tonight in Phoenix. Uh, Suns hosting the Bucks. Suns trying to take a 2-0 series lead. Uh, we talked last segment about Giannis, his knee injury. Expected to play tonight. Uh, Dario Saric out for the Suns. He tore his ACL in game one. And uh, the guys who call the NBA Finals on ESPN Radio, Mark Kessler and John Barry, uh, got to sit down and talk with the Suns head coach, Monty Williams, on the eve of uh, tonight's game two. What did you think of the execution for your sons in game one and as you prepare now for game two? Well, I mean, there's always things that we nitpick at and overcoach, and especially the night when you watch the film and then you go home, you sleep, you get emotionally settled, and you come back in and you dial it down a bit. Um, But I thought the spacing was a B plus, A minus for us um, when they – through different coverages at us from the switching. Uh, the second half, uh, they went to a drop with Lopez. I thought we were able to get to our, our, our spacing you know, in a way that allowed for us to get to the paint a little bit. Um, there were some things that we could you know, do better or faster um, because we know that they're going to make adjustments or do what they do uh, better. And we, we expressed that uh, this morning in our film session. Monty, you had a 20-point lead that got cut to seven. Uh, it seemed like that was after they went small with Giannis at the five. What kind of problems did that lineup they had on the floor present to you guys? Yeah, I think the speed with that lineup, especially in transition, um, when he goes into a rim run, it flattens out your defense. And it allows for them to have more space. And then there were just times where uh, we just didn't close out to, to Chris's feet, Middleton's feet. Um, he was just getting into a rhythm, left hand, left hand, raise up, jump shot. Um, but that lineup is a lineup that we expect them to play uh, more um, in game two. And, and we certainly talked about the things that we can do better in that lineup. One, you got to get back and form a wall 
um, against Giannis if he has the ball. But if he's in a rim run, uh, you may have to get two guys back because he does a good job of sealing, especially a smaller defender. And, you know, he talks about that Bucks lineup. Middleton had a good game, game one, 29 points. But here you have Milwaukee, didn't have Giannis at 100%. Did not get a great game from Drew Holiday. He only had 10 points on 4 of 14 shooting. They let Chris Paul go off for 16 of his 32 points in the third quarter. But still, and you heard him talk about knocking down that 20-point deficit, still only a 13-point loss. So they really, despite not even knowing if Giannis was going to play until like minutes before the game, they weren't that far off. And ESPN's Kevin Arnovitz says the Bucks can definitely find ways to make up those points in game two. You know, there's this ledger, and, and the red is bigger than the black right now for, for Milwaukee, but there are things just clean up. The Bucks are the best team in basketball at defending without fouling. You know, they did not do that successfully in game one. You just get back to being the Milwaukee Bucks who defend without fouling. I mean, how many points are you going to take off? You know, you take off the board right there. The Bucks are the best or second best defensive transition team in basketball. They give up a ton of fast break points with this kind of sloppy transition. Do you clean that up? They aren't supposed to get the Phoenix Suns, who aren't a fast team, by the way. They're a half-court Chris Paulton. They 20 fast break points. I mean, they really, given the matchup, that's, that should be 14 or 13. Okay, we just saved seven points there. We just saved, what, on the fouling, probably another six or seven. I just counted 12 or 13 points right there, which was essentially the margin of the game. And that's just doing two things well that they traditionally do. This isn't over. Like, we just found points for the Milwaukee Bucks that are there for the taking if they just play kind of their average brand of basketball. I think a lot of people, maybe not a lot, it's a stretch, but some people, kind of put the series to bed after game one. That the Suns are just a better team, Giannis isn't healthy, that the series over is over after one game. And if you said that, then you haven't been paying attention to any of the playoffs this year, basketball or hockey. One game does not a series make. And you heard Kevin right there say, hey, they can make those points up, no problem. I think I, I still think it's going to be a really good series. I don't think it's going to be the Suns in five, right? They're not going to dispose of the Bucks the way the Lightning did the Canadiens, right? It's not that lopsided of a series. Heck, they played twice in the regular season. The Suns did win both games, but it was only by one point each. It's not, I mean, these teams are closer than you think. Game one, you know, notwithstanding, it is what it is. Somebody's got to win. So I would not be surprised at all if Milwaukee bounces back and wins tonight. Now, I also wouldn't be surprised if the Suns win tonight and, and then the Bucks go home and win the next two games. Yeah, don't, it could be one of those series. It could be one of those series where the home team wins every game and we're sitting here talking about a Game 7 back in Phoenix for all the marbles. It's very possible. Very possible. And, of course, uh, we'll break down uh, tonight's game uh, during tomorrow's show. Uh, speaking of tomorrow, it being Friday, which got here a lot quicker than usual because of the four-day work week. Uh, another Rush Friday feature, Joe Shuda. Uh, his focus of the feature is actually me as we do another Ask Tony segment. It's the third and final one of the year. 
instead of Joe interviewing, you know, former athletes, former coaches, he just goes rapid fire questions at me. And I have to, unfortunately, have to answer. So we'll, <laughs> we'll have, I don't know why I do that to myself, but Joe's fair. They're fun questions. It's just something we do different to give Joe a break, really, from trying to track people down. But he ha- I tell you what, he has some good interviews coming up. He has some good interviews in the bank uh, coming up here. And, of course, well, there's not going to be any shows after tomorrow. Oh, I'm sorry, any Friday shows for, I think, three. Is it three weeks? I'm not going to be here after tomorrow. I will not be here for the next three Fridays. But then when we come back... Joe's going to have a bunch more Friday features. But tomorrow's Friday feature is, it's me. So, do with that what you will. All right, our number one in the books. Our number two around the corner doing push-ups. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230. WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. Also talk some baseball, and that's where we'll start this hour as we rock around the region. I want to rock right now. And Major League Baseball. The Nationals jumped on the Padres early and often last night in San Diego. That one is hit well to left. See you later. Number 400 for Soto on hits. And just like that, it's 3-0. And Bell takes it the other way. Escobar scoring. Turner coming home. Ball gets away. Runners will hold it second and third. And the Nats do lead 5-0. Bob Carpenter, the call on Mid-Atlantic Sports Net. Nationals scored three runs in the first, four in the second, two in the third to take a 10-0 lead. And they went on to hammer the pods 15-5. Juan Soto announced earlier yesterday that he will participate in the home run derby. And then he went out and had that three-run jack in the first inning. Uh, Josh Harrison, former Pirate, had three hits and three runs batted in. Josh Bell, former Pirate, had three hits and drove in two for Washington, which can take three of four in the series with a win tonight. Catch that game right here, uh, pregame at 840. Patrick Corbin, the beneficiary of the early run support. He allowed two runs on seven hits in six innings of work to pick up the win. Elsewhere, uh, speaking of blowouts, the Braves were trying to avoid uh, getting swept out of Pittsburgh. The other nine have gotten on. Well, that's over with now. Base hit out to left. And he's going to bring in a pair of Braves. Acuna and Adrianza score on that two-run single. It's now 7-3 Atlanta. They've scored five times here in the sixth. Joe Block, the call on the Pirates Radio Network. You heard him say it, five runs for the Braves in that sixth inning. And that wasn't even the worst inning for the Pirates. Here's the old one and a swing and a ground ball through the middle. Base hit. And at this rate, when you go to bed, you can hear the ninth inning. Atlanta's putting it on tonight. It is 10-3. Seven more runs in the eighth inning for the Braves as they pounded out 18 hits in a 14-3 win to avoid that three-game sweep. Uh, the Pirates' bullpen was absolutely atrocious. Uh, Kyle Crick allowed four runs in just a third of an inning. Dwayne Underwood Jr. was worse. He gave up all seven runs in that eighth inning on eight hits. That will not help the ERA at all. 
Jacob Stallings had a two-run homer. John Nagowski, the big Nagowski, no-go, had four hits for the Pirates. Uh, since coming over from the Cardinals, Nagowski is 7 for 12 with the Pirates. That's an average of 583. And in Baltimore, the Blue Jays hammered out 15 hits in a 10-2 win over the Oreos. Uh, Bo Bichette homered and drove in three runs. Vlad Guerrero Jr. had three hits for the Jays. And there's O's starter Matt Harvey. He got tagged for six runs on nine hits in just three and two-thirds innings. He is now 3-10 and ten this season with a robust ERA of 770. He is 0-9 in his last 12 starts since May 1st, and he now ranks second in the American League in losses, one behind his own teammate, Jorge Lopez. Those two have combined for 21 losses this season. Austin Hayes uh, had two hits and an RBI for Baltimore. In uh, college football, the All-Big 12 preseason team was announced yesterday, yes, We're into that already. And Dante Stills was the only West Virginia player to make the list. Uh, Stills is one of five defensive linemen on the 14-player defense. His older brother, Darius, remember him from last year. Uh, He was last year's Big 12 Defensive Lineman of the Year. Last season as a junior, Dante was an all-Big 12 honorable mention pick after posting 35 tackles, including a team-high 10.5 tackles, for loss. Oklahoma led the way, putting nine players on the all-conference preseason team. Iowa State had eight. Oklahoma quarterback Spencer Rattler is the preseason pick for Offensive Player of the Year. Iowa State linebacker Mike Rose is the preseason pick on defense. The Big 12 will announce the media's preseason poll sometime uh, later today. And that is your Rock Around the Region brought to you by the Caporale Group. I feel something happening right now, and I don't know what it is. I noticed it like heading into the last break of hour number one. I don't know if I got allergies kicking in or if I'm getting a cold. I could I can just can you sometimes you just feel it. That you feel your throat gets a little bit scratchy, itchy. Nose starting to get a little bit clogged. I got one nostril, you know, struggling right now. Something's going on. I could feel it. I just don't know what it is. And here I am with neither uh, cold medicine nor allergy medication, so <laughs> I guess I have to suffer through it. But I feel it. Oh, I have a uh, an update on our cat because I know, I know that you woke up this morning wondering about my cat. I know you did. I know you did. I know you tuned in specifically for an update on our our young cat, Bits, who we took in the other day to get, well, you know, to get fixed, to get spayed. Because that's something that you you should do. Got her back yesterday. She's doing good. She's doing fine. Of course, you know, she got the, you know, she got the the cut, the stitch. And here's a funny thing. Uh the I, I get I don't know, what are they, nurses? I don't know what they are in vets. Vets have nurses, is that what it is? She brings 
the cat out because now we you still can't go into the hospital. They bring the cats out to the car, and she's giving me instructions. You know, medication. This blah blah blah. blah. You know, no hard. You know, no jumping. No hard playing. Try to keep. And that's the fun. You know, try try to keep their activity at a minimum. We're talking about a four month old cat here. Good luck with that. And then you got the stitches issue. You know, try to keep them from picking or butting at the stitches. That's what animals do. If you ever had a dog or a cat who's had surgery, they they will sometimes they'll pick and bite at the stitches. And I'm sitting there like, it's like no way. There's no way. Like asking a four month old cat to not bite at stitches is like asking me not to go up to the buffet for a third time. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So it's it's frustrating because you don't want her to pull the stitches. She pulls the stitches. Guess where you're going? You're going back to the vet. And then you got to put that stupid cone on their head and listen to them cry about it for two weeks. Other than that, though, she's fine. <laughs> she's no worse for the wear. Let's put it that way. I don't I don't know if it's just uh, the stupidity of youthfulness because you know she's just uh, basically still a kitten. But if I just had surgery, I wouldn't be running around like she was yesterday. Let's put it that way. I don't know if it's just different. Animals are different. I don't know. I'm I'm just I'm soft when it comes. If I have surgery, which I've had some in my life, where if I'm not feeling well, I'm I'm done. I'm down for the count. You can count me out until I feel better. Anyway, that's the update on my cat. Because I know, again, uh, you were on the edge of your seats waiting for that update uh, this morning. <laughs> One thing I saw uh, during last break, and again, I usually uh, peruse the interwebs. I jump on the socials, usually Twitter, to see if there's any kind of breaking headlines, something that's you know come down the pike. You know, at some point in the morning, because I'm sitting there talking, I can't really check you know thing at the same time. And I just come across this random headline that's kind of caught my attention. Uh, scientists say that last week's uh, heat wave that spread across the country was virtually impossible without climate change. I looked at that headline, and I looked at the calendar, and I'm like, huh, a heat wave in the first week of July. Who would have thunk it? (laughs) Are Are we really... Now, look, I'm not going to get into the argument about climate change. Some people think it's real. Some people don't. Whatever. I'm not here to change anybody's minds either way. But a heat wave in July might not be your best argument for climate change. That's that's all I'm saying. Now, if there's a heat wave in January, we can talk. But a heat wave in the first week of July, that's not climate change. That's summer. Just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. (laughs) A heat wave in July couldn't be possible without climate change. No, that's not how it works. God forbid we have a heat wave in the middle of summertime. Who would have, seriously, who would, we are caught off guard. Temperatures in the 90s on July 4th? Mmm. Impossible. Impossible. 
Anyway, uh, college basketball news. I noticed this. Johnny Juzang, UCLA, who really just took the country by storm uh, during the NCAA tournament last year, right? Or I guess earlier this year. He announced that he is actually coming back to UCLA. He is withdrawing his name from the NBA draft, returning to the Bruins in in a uh, day and age where we see college players either hit the transfer portal or, or go to the NBA early. It's actually kind of refreshing to see a, a guy come back. And look, he made a name for himself in the tournament, for sure. And he was the main reason why UCLA made that huge run in March, right? Because they were in the first, they went from the first four, which actually is the last four in, they played in the first four, all the way to the final four. And it seemed like he just got better and better and better as the tournament went on, right? He had 23 points in that first four game against Michigan State. Then he had 27 against BYU. But then, hey, they knocked off Michigan, who was a one seed, right? He had 28 against Michigan. Then he had 29 against Gonzaga, and they barely, barely missed out on upsetting Gonzaga in the final four. And uh, what is it? What they play? Six or the six? Five or six? I guess it would have been six with that first four game. And six tournament games, Juzang averaged almost 23 points a game. Shot 51% from the field. And he scored a total of 137 points, which is the second highest NCAA tournament total in UCLA history. And that's a pretty deep history <laughs> when you talk about UCLA basketball. And in the regular season, he was still pretty good. He wasn't NCAA tournament good. He averaged 16 points and four boards a game. But even if you listen to some of the scouting reports, even after his you know breakout tournament, he was only projected to be a, like a late second-round pick in the NBA draft. So, actually, I guess that decision was pretty easy. You come back. To UCLA for another year, you hopefully you continue that streak, that string of excellent play, and you up your draft stock for next year. So it's good news for you guys, or UCLA. Bad news for the rest of the Pac-12. Uh, Johnny Juzang going back to uh, UCLA. So we're going to talk some soccer. I'm going to try. I'm gonna, I'm going to attempt to talk uh, some soccer. I don't do it very well. I don't follow soccer at all, hardly at all. But it is July. We do have some of the uh, – see, I hesitate to say big sports. Soccer is a big sport. It really is. It's not one of the big – it's not considered one of the big four, you know, hockey, basketball, baseball, and football. But it, it has such a huge following. I don't know why it's not considered like one of the big five. But apparently, and again, I am just flying by the seat of my pants here. Uh, Euro 2020, is that European Championship? I got that right? Uh, it was England and uh, Denmark in the semifinals. The winner uh, moves on to take on Italy in the Euro 2021 final. And we went to extra time. I hope I'm getting this right. And England... Where's my clip at? Hold on one second. I can't find it. 
Here it is. They go to extra time, game tied 1-1, and England uh, gets a penalty kick. And he does it, but he gets another chance and puts it in. And England lead 2-1. Kane on the rebound. Perry Kane. In extra time. Actually, he had his penalty kick blocked, but he put the rebound back to give England a 2-1 lead, and they won the game. They beat Denmark. It was the first semifinal win for England since the 1966 World Cup. And again, they will take on Italy for the Euro 2020 Championship. Now, as I'm following along, as I'm getting updated on this thing this morning, trying, you know, trying to keep track, a lot of the talk after the match was the penalty kick. Should I'm, I'm coughing over here because I'm telling you something's going on. It's either allergies or a cold. My throat, my, my voice is starting to go. The question was, should the penalty kick have ever happened at that point in the game in extra time with a spot in the final on the line? Here's ESPN rules expert Mark Clattenburg. It's very highly debatable, and it's one of them penalties which, is a, is a referee, do you really want to settle a match on this type of decision? But once Danny Magalele gives the penalty, there's going to be absolutely no doubt because the communication from Danny Magalele is what he's actually saw. Was it the upper body from the second defender or was it the foul, the initial foul on the foot of Raheem Sterling, on the leg of Raheem Sterling? And that's what Danny Magalele would have converted to the VAR and that's what the VAR has looked at. And once there's contact, there has to be absolutely no contact for the referee to overturn that. And once there's contact and Sterling's running at pace, the, v- the referee is automatically going to give the penalty. Would I want to give it in such a big match? I'm not, I'm not sure. I think, would you want to settle this on such an important game? Especially when we've seen an earlier penalty on Harry Kane, which was possibly more of a penalty, even though yeah. there was more contact. That was more of a penalty than the Raheem Sterling one. Okay, let me, let me put it in context. You're, you've explained very clearly and eloquently about how VAR is used in this. You have the experience in these high-level matches. When that is happening that quickly, when you saw it in real time immediately, did you understand why the penalty was called? What did you think then? I can understand why it's called, but I would rather it's not given. And therefore, the VR, especially when it's so soft, the VR can then recommend you to go to the review area, see it for a second time, and then make your decision. Once the referee's give, given it, there's going to be absolutely no way that this is a clear and obvious error because there is contact. See, I haven't had the guy's name wrong. I called him Perry Kane. It's Harry Kane. I'm trying my best here to talk soccer. That should be like a weekly segment. Tony tries to talk soccer. And we can make it a hilarious thing because it's actually kind of funny. Because I really don't know much <laughs> about soccer at all. Now, and this is, okay, I'm going to try to, I'm going to attempt to try to pronounce this name. Denmark coach Casper is a Hulmond. Look, the first two letters of his name is H-J. You figure it out. I think it's Hulmond. We'll go with Hulmond. He was very frustrated, as you can imagine, after that game, losing an extra time after that penalty. And he said, quote, we're very, very disappointed, and it's hard for me to talk about. Maybe it'll be easier for me to say how I feel in a few days. And the quote continues, we're just very disappointed that we were so close to the final. We're disappointed it was decided that way. It was a penalty that shouldn't have been a penalty. And that annoys me right now. We're disappointed. We're very disappointed. 
He said, it's one thing to lose a game. That happens. But losing this way is just a disappointment. Apparently, he's disappointed. He said, these guys fought a lot. It's bitter. It's hard to digest. It's a bitter way to leave a tournament. So I guess that's understandable, right? If you're if you're a head coach and you see a penalty called that it's almost like you know giving a team a power play in hockey, right? Or a, a referee throwing a flag in a football game at a crucial and, and, and the the debate goes on and on about any sport really of how referees or umpires should officiate a game, whether it's late in the game or in overtime, if they should officiate it differently, depending on the situation. Do they officiate differently in the first quarter than they do down the stretch in the fourth quarter? Do they call games differently in week two of the regular season as compared to where they call it in the playoffs? And... I, sometimes it depends on the referee or the umpire or the official. I think some do call it differently. I think there are some officials that simply don't want to be the reason a team wins and loses. They don't want to be that guy or or that girl to make a call that swings or sways the outcome of a game. But there are other people who say a foul, a foul in the first quarter or I guess we're talking soccer, a foul in the first half is a foul or a penalty in extra time. Or basketball, if it's a foul in the first quarter, it's a foul in overtime. You call it, you know, call it by the book. And I've always been one to say, if it's a foul, it's a foul. If it's a penalty, it's a penalty. Don't be afraid if you're an official or an umpire to make the call. Don't let the situation influence whether you blow the whistle or not. Now, that's not, that's not saying that they always get the calls right. And maybe in this instance, they called a penalty that wasn't a penalty. It depends on your perspective and how you look at it. But you at least, at least, unless you're a Denmark fan, of course, you at least give the official credit for not being afraid to call the penalty. Whether he got the call right or wrong, again, another discussion. Because there are a lot of officials, again, a lot of umpires, they just simply won't make a tough call in a tough situation because they're just afraid to be that that person. Uh, what do we always uh, hear people say? Let the players decide the outcome, right? Let the players on the court, let the players on the field decide the, the wins and the losses. Yeah, I guess to an extent. But sometimes a foul is still a foul. A penalty is still a penalty. And you see it a lot. I think hockey more than most sports. I mean, the referees, they they might I don't even know why they carry whistles out on the ice for like overtimes in the playoffs. It's pretty much anything, unless there is blood drawn, they're not calling anything. Unless somebody is decapitated, if they are cut open. If there's a bone sticking out, <laughs> they just don't call anything. Hockey may be the worst. Not, not maybe, they are. They are the worst when it comes to referees swallowing the whistle. Some people like that. Some people say, all right, that, they don't want the referees to influence and give a team a man advantage 
in overtime of the playoffs. Some people like myself are like, hey, man, if it's a penalty in the first period, it's a penalty in the fourth overtime. Call it. Denmark coach, uh, what I try to pronounce, Casper Halmund, is that what it is? Uh, Hulmund? I don't even know. It's Casper. Casper, the friendly coach. He's obviously disappointed that his team lost. Now, on the other side, England, they're not going to apologize for anything. <laughs> they got the penalty, got the penalty kicked, rebound, goal. They're moving on to the Euro 2020 finals to take on Italy, who I'll be rooting for because I'm a tie. That's what you do, right? To talk about the significance of England moving on, uh, Taylor Twyman was on with us, Scott Van Pelt, last night. Globally, Taylor, how significant is it for them to be on this stage with an opportunity to win Euro 2020? It's a little surreal, Scott, when you look at it. Now, I'm going to give you two different ways to look at it. First off, when the draw came out, everyone looked at this and said, you know what, this is England's tournament to lose because if they get to the final, six of their seven games are going to be played in the building right behind me. And it's almost this confluence of joy, Scott, where they're using England getting to the final for the first time since 1966, but it's more so getting out of the pandemic. Both of those are coming to a head, and you're starting to see the country get behind it. I'd be shocked if 30 million people in this country didn't watch this game. I think that estimate could be low. So great, you're through. But now you take on Italy. The Azzurri have not lost in 33 matches in the goal differential, and you provided me this information. They're plus 76 goals. They've only surrendered 10 goals <laughs> in 33 matches. So they present quite an obstacle. What's the sense that you have of who emerges victorious Sunday in Wembley? This Italy team is up-tempo. They play at a pace that makes you very uncomfortable. And that's why England's got to get to another level because Italy's going to have an extra day of rest. They're going to be up for it, but they're not going to be overwhelmed by the 70,000-plus here at Wembley. This may be one of the best finals this European championship have ever seen. So there you go. England, Italy, Euro 21 finals. Catch the fever. And that is my, uh, that is Tony's yearly attempt uh, to talk soccer here on the rush. <laughs> I try. I try. Hey, guess what we're going to talk about next? We're going to go from soccer to tennis. Could it be the end of an era for one of the greatest tennis players we've ever seen? Stick around for that after news and weather. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. I jump on the socials. I jump on the Twitter to see if I miss, you know. Any breaking headlines, any breaking news, any breaking stories, whatever. And I see this tweet from this Twitter account called NFL Throwback, at NFL Throwback. And it simply says, Ed Reed or Troy Polamalu, let's debate. And he has this video montage of Ed Reed and Troy Polamalu. Uh, For the final time, and I'll say this loud enough for the people in the back. There is no debate between Ed Reed and Troy Palomo. All right. They were two different safeties. One was a free safety, one was a strong safety. Yes, they were both safeties, but they had different responsibilities. 
debating, comparing those two is like comparing apples to apples. But it's red apples against green apples. Two completely different kind of apples. They're not the same thing. Sean Salisbury, you remember him, right? Former NFL quarterback. He put it like this, and this is perfect. Ed Reed was a free safety. Palomalu, a strong safety, which are very different. Ed, as good a ball hawk as we've ever seen in the league. Brilliant football mind. Troy was as explosive a tackler and disruptive a strong safety as we've ever watched. Room on my team for both. That's it. That's There's no debate. They're two different kinds of players. If you put Ed Reed and Troy Polamalu on the same team, neither one of their production would drop because they're not doing the same thing. They don't have the same responsibilities. First of all, that would be tremendous. That would be the greatest set of safeties on one team ever. But they would not take away from one another because one's a free. One, so can we stop it? Can we put it to bed? Can we never bring it up again? Comparing those two, it's useless. <laughs> it's absolutely useless. Can we just say that they, not only two of the greatest safeties of their era, but of all time, and be done with it. Just be done with it. I saw, I didn't read the article because I thought the headline was foolish. I think it came from Deadspin, I think. And it was like, you know, Shohei Otani is not the must-see player in Major League Baseball. It's Fernando Tatis Jr. You can have that discussion. You can have that debate. But why? Can't we just say that they're two of the... Can't we just say that they're two phenomenal players and be done with it? Why are we even trying to compare the two? Until Fernando Tatis Jr. gets on the mound and starts a couple games at pitcher, why are we comparing the two? What's the point? What Otani is doing now, we've never seen before. Not since the days of, I don't know, some guy named Babe Ruth. The man has made the all-star team as a pitcher and a DH, a hitter. It's never been done before. It's never been done before. Tatis Jr., he's not doing that. But that's okay because he is phenomenal in his own right. I don't understand why. We always have to, you know, oh, well, this guy isn't the most must player. This guy, How about they're both must players? And we move on. Uh, by the way, uh, speaking of uh, Shohei Otani, uh, he did it again last night. The 2-2. Here's one that's lifted high and deep into right field. It is out of here. Shohei Otani has homered here in this series. That's number 32 of the season. That's his 15th homer in the last 20 games. That was the call on Angels Radio AM uh, 830. As the Angels, what was the score of that game? I'm trying to find out. I don't even can't remember who they played. Yeah, West Coast baseball, you know. I'll tell you here in a second so I can pull it up. 
I know Angels won the game 5-4, to four, I can tell you that. Now I'm just trying to find out who they beat. Oh, the internet, again, uh, running at the speed of mud in this building. This is incredible. Like, how, it shouldn't take this long to call, oh, here it is, <laughs> to call up one page. Angels beat, oh, beat the Red Sox. There you go, 5-4. to four. Otani, 15th home run in his last 20 games. He now has 32. Breaking the record for home runs by a Japanese-born player in an entire season. Hideki Matsui hit 31 in 2004. That was for the entire season. Otani has 32 before the All-Star break. That's amazing. Now, the story came out a couple days ago that Joe Madden, manager of the Angels, reached out to Kevin Cash, manager of the Tampa Bay Rays and manager of this year's All-Star game. Because the managers of the previous World Series, they are the managers in the next year's All-Star game. Madden reached out to Kevin Cash and said, what do you think about putting Otani in the All-Star game as a pitcher and as a hitter? Because he is worthy of both. Some people kind of, like, they bristle with that. Maybe Madden shouldn't be stepping in. I don't know. Maybe Kevin Cash needed some help after decisions he made in the World Series last year. You know what I'm talking about. But either way, it turns out they decided, or Cash decided, whether he was influenced or not, that Otani is going to be the first player ever to go to an All-Star game as a pitcher and as a hitter. Uh, the guys uh, yesterday at PTI discuss. Is Madden right to encourage Cash to pitch and hit Otani in the All-Star game? Of course, yes. Yes, this is historic. Not historic like it just it's happened three times in the get-up era. No, it, it, it's never <laughs> happened, ever. And now, okay, there was no All-Star game back when Babe Ruth could have and would That's have right. done this. That's right. There wasn't. I mean, because Babe Ruth could have done this every year from, what, 1914 to 1923 or something like that. I mean, Ruth could have done this many times, but he didn't because it was no All-Star game. Started, I think, in 1933, the All-Star game. So, yes, encourage it. Not everything is a big deal. And Joe Madden is not some, you know, Johnny-come-lately, you know, doofus who only wants to manage by numbers and not pay attention to the history of the game. Joe Madden's a grown, mature man who understands the significance of certain events. Good for Joe. So let me get to the exact question. Should Kevin Cash do this? Yes. Not only should he do it, but if he doesn't start Otani on the mound and as a DH then Rob Manfred should remove him from being a manager. He should pull him. <laughs> he should yank him the way he Kevin Cash yanked him. Blake Snell in the World yeah. Series. Yeah. Because Otani is the player that most people want to see most. This is, as you say, a historic event. I would start him only because if he's out there as a DH, start him on the mound. Because if he's out there as a DH, it may get complicated in terms of where and how, how he warm warms up. up if you're going to yeah. bring him in as a reliever. And I would also start him because you don't have Jacob deGrom in the American League. You don't have a guy with a O-point-something ERA. The best ERA right now in the American League among the pitchers is 1.98, Kyle Gibson okay. from Texas. And he can That's go significantly better than Otani, though. I, yeah, but you want him out there early. And it's an I, exhibition game. It's I not agree. a real game. And one more By thing. The way, I'm what? saying this so the kids 
can see Otani before they go to bed. And by the kids, I mean me. Because I want to go to yeah. bed at 9, and I want to see Otani. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Because I feel, I feel Tony's pain. Yeah, Get him in early so I can go to bed. Otani, we talked about 32 home runs already. Pitching-wise this year, he's 4-1. ERA is not the best. It's a 3.49. But it's not terrible. It's not great. 87 strikeouts in 67 innings. He has a whip of 1.21. He's deserving to be there on both ends. And yes, it would be nice if Kevin Cash started him the All-Star game so we can see him pitch. We can because we don't. How often do we get to see him play? He's out there on the West Coast. One of the more fascinating players we've ever seen in the history of Major League Baseball, and he got he has to be stuck out there on the West Coast. All right, uh, one final break, then back to uh, wrap things up on this Thursday morning. Stick around. One hundred two point one FM, AM twelve thirty, WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. Talking soccer and tennis in the same hour. Uh, unprecedented move here on the show. Wimbledon. A lot of people looking forward to a possible finals matchup between a 19-time Grand Slam winner, uh, Novak Djokovic, and 20-time uh, Grand Slam winner, Roger Federer. Uh, only one took care of business yesterday. Djokovic, or Djokovic rolled in straight sets to move on to the uh, Wimbledon semifinals. Uh, Federer, not so much. He was rolled in straight sets by 14th-seeded Hubert Hercotch, uh, 6-3, 7-6, and 6-love. Uh, Federer, eight-time Wimbledon champ, underwent two operations on his right knee uh, last year and was out for pretty much an entire year. And he arrived at Wimbledon playing a total of eight matches this season. His quest for a ninth Wimbledon title done after the straight sets loss uh, to Hercotch. Here he is after the match. You can see it was a struggle for me. I'm putting in extra effort all the time, especially when things get difficult against Felix and Halle or today against Hercotch. Um, and uh, I knew it was going to be really hard, you know, to be honest. I just got to talk to the team, you know, take my time and not feel rushed by you guys or anybody else for that matter. You know, I got to take my time and take the right decision and the one decision I want to take, you know, and where I feel more, most comfortable. I'm actually very happy I made it uh, as far as I did here and that I actually was able to play Wimbledon at the level that I did after everything that I went through. So, um, of course, I would like to play it again, you know, but uh, at my age, you're just never sure what's, what's around the corner. Not only uh, did Federer get bounced in straight sets, he did not look good in doing so. Here's a guy who turns 40 on August 8th. So this was his last major tournament in his 30s. Could this be the end of an era? Could he be done? Could we? Could this be it? Like, is he going to be stuck on 20 Grand Slam titles? That's it. He's done. Here is Patty Mack, Pat McEnroe, and Darren Cahill. Well, a lot of a lot of emotions watching Federer leave the court because you just you're not sure if this is it. I mean, you you sort of speculate. We're all wondering. I think he'll take some time to think about this. But certainly, the, the way he went out in the final set, getting bageled, 
he just it, it almost didn't look like he wanted to be out there at that point. Like he knew the writing was on the proverbial wall. Hercotch obviously had a lot of firepower, played a very mature match, Darren. But, you know, for, you wonder now for Roger. I mean, I wonder if he's willing to pay the price that he needs to, obviously physically, to come back because the movement wasn't there. His ability to run quickly, especially when he had to go wide, was not there. And I think he knew that. I think he felt that, especially after, you know, dropping the second set, which he probably should have won. Um, so if he thinks he can do the work to get back, you know, to get his fitness and get his movement back, I think he'll continue. But I don't think he continues if he thinks that this is the best he can do, the best he can play at this point. Yeah, if he's not going to get rewarded for the right. work. Because I think he's willing to do the work. He's always mm-hmm. has been willing to do the work. But at 39 years of age, whether or not you get that reward, and it's kind of what Andy Murray's going through as well right at the moment. But... You know, we talk about the why these guys get out of bed and do the training they do. And and had you even said to me at the start of the tournament, Chris, what would be a good result for Roger coming in here with all the form and the two knee surgeries and everything coming into the tournament? Eh, quarterfinals would mm-hmm. be a decent result. So it's kind of where it is at the moment. I guess what's a little bit shocking for all of us was the way it happened right. today. And that second set tiebreaker, I'm not sure that I've seen a worse tiebreak from Roger. He looked a little bit clumsy on a couple of points and shaking the forehand a lot. And then really for his level to come down four or five notches in that final set. Got to love Hubie though. You know, the guy gets hot, doesn't he? In Miami, he goes through the whole tournament and yeah. he beats a pass in the final. Barely wins a match from Miami, then gets hot here again on the grass. And also against Medvedev, he was lucky to win that match because he should have been three and out. Somehow he won that second set to stay alive, and he's turned it all around. And that's what Grand Slam tennis, best of five tennis, is all about, just try to stay alive. So there you go. Djokovic moves on at Wimbledon, a Federer out, and maybe it's an end of an era, really, for one of the best tennis players we've ever seen. Uh, before we get out of here, quickly, let's check on the player who delivered, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. How about the Lightning's Andre Vasilevsky? The man stood tall in net once again, stopping all 22 shots he faced last night to preserve the Lightning's 1-0 win over Montreal to clinch back-to-back Stanley Cup titles in Tampa Bay's last five series-clinching games. Vasilevsky has posted shutouts in all five, which is an NHL record. Vasilevsky won the Conn Smythe Trophy as a playoff MVP, 16-7 and seven this postseason, a 1.90 goals against, a 9.37 save percentage with five shutouts again for those in series-clinching games. Andre Vasilevsky, big time. Our player who delivered, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. Don't forget, Nationals, Padres, tonight, right here, pregame at 840. Be back tomorrow for a funky Friday. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you. Enjoy the rest of your day. See you back here tomorrow, 6 a.m. sharp. This is the Morning Rush. I am Tony C., and I am done. Ah, bye. Bye. 